to this morning as we uh, consider um, the theme of the gracious providence of God. Would you open the book of Acts to chapter uh, 25 as we continue our sermon series uh, through the book of Acts? Chapter 25, we'll be reading. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 27. If you uh, did not bring your Bible and you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 934. We are slowly approaching the end of the book of Acts. And uh, let's hear what the Lord says, has to say, and wants to speak to us this morning through this passage. Acts 25. Here's the word of the Lord. Now, three days after Festus has arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice had arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. 
being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Would you join me in asking the Lord to bless the reading of his word, the preaching, for our hearts. Join me, please. Father, thank you that you, in your word, give, give us details about events and situations that are aimed to instruct us in how you work in the background, even in those situations when we may not know how to explain what is happening. Father, we pray that you would use this word, you would use this time of preaching and proclaiming your word to speak to our hearts. Speak, we pray, by the Holy Spirit. Use this word for the glory of your name. And may our hearts cherish you and cherish what you have declared to us and revealed to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, this passage that we have before us is more like an introduction. It's, a, in one sense, a transition, but also an introduction to really what's about to happen in chapter 26. In chapter 26 is one of the, the famous defense speeches, the famous one of the, the most well-known um, speeches that Paul gives in his defense before an audience that was willing to listen. And at that time, it's not even, um, he's, he's no longer on trial, but he's simply giving an explanation while, why he is in, in bonds, in chain. But before that passage, before chapter 26, uh, we have chapter 25. And, and it seems amazing how many details the the gospel the the Luke the, uh, the the writer of Acts is giving us about this transition from from prison to being able to give a defense before King Agrippa. He is in, in chapter twenty four. Uh, we see Paul imprisoned under Felix. Between chapter twenty four and chapter twenty five, two years pass. There was a change of governors in Caesarea. Felix, the previous governor, uh, when he finished his term, his term, left Paul in prison because he desired to do the Jews a favor. So at the end of ch chapter 24, we're left with the impression 
that Paul is uh, at the mercy at, and at the whims of Roman governors, Roman leaders. Have you ever felt like you are at the mercy of other people? Or at the mercy of circumstances over which you have no control? There's nothing you can do about it? In some way, um, this, this, is, this is Paul's situation. He is left in prison. Two years have passed, and there's no sense of what's going to happen. What's next? What makes Paul's imprisonment um, interesting is that two years earlier, before he got to Caesarea and has been put in prison in Caesarea, the Lord appeared to Paul and assured him that he must testify about the Lord Jesus in Rome. Well, this is two years later. Nothing has happened. Paul is stuck in a prison cell, not in Rome, but in Caesarea. And he doesn't know what, what's going to happen next. And we don't know if Paul grew impatient or tired or frustrated concerning two years of, of imprisonment. But chapter 25 tells us what happened two years later. Chapter 25 begins by telling us that actually Paul might be going back to Jerusalem. In his case, he was about to be tried again, as if everything was, was starting all over again now that a new governor has come on the governor's seat in Caesarea. His case is still uncertain. His destiny is actually even in more danger now than it was before. This doesn't sound like God's plan, does it? It doesn't sound like the kind of smooth ride we typically expect when God is in control. Right? We, when, we, when we know that God is in control, we typically expect a smooth ride. Or when we know that God is in control, we typically expect a smooth ride. And what we see at the beginning of chapter 25 is anything but that. Yet God used the unknown God used the uncertainties concerning Paul, even the dangers that, that grew against him to open more gospel opportunities. God's providence was fully at work, even in the midst of prolonged timing of, of, of waiting in prison, even in the midst of, of increasing danger and uncertainty, God was still in control, orchestrating the details, orchestrating the the, the, the situations to open doors for the gospel, even through an impri through a, a imprisoned apostle. So as we look at this chapter, chapter 25, there seem to be two parts to this chapter. Um, and both, and once I describe Paul's growing opposition, and yet also Paul's unexpected opportunity to make the gospel known. How, how do these things work out together? From growing opposition to an unexpected opportunity to make the gospel known. Let's look at these two parts, and uh, I've entitled these God's Providence in Growing Opposition. God's Providence in Growing Opposition. Our text begins by telling us that the new governor, once he arrived uh, at his seat in Caesarea, three days into his governorship, makes a quick trip to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of Jerusalem, to get to know them, to get to know their situation. We read in verse 2, that as he arrived there, the chief priests uh, tried to make use of this newness, the, the new, new position of the governor, 
And in verse 2 we read that the chief priests and the principal men of Jerusalem of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him in Jerusalem. Luke tells us two years have passed since Paul was taken out of Jerusalem, and yet the chief priests and the key leaders of the city were not satisfied with Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea. They wanted him dead. Even though two years have passed, their desire to exterminate Paul did not cease. As a matter of fact, it increased. The deceptiveness of the Jewish opposition against Paul is seen in, chapter, in verse 3. Look at verse 3. The chief priests and the key leaders were not interested to give Paul another trial. That's what they say they want. That's what they say they want. They request a favor to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. But the real reason why they ask that is because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, what's interesting, in chapter 24, which was two years before, the ones who planned the ambush were not the chief priests, were a, a, mo- a, a zealous mob that was trying to do that with the approval and with the knowledge of the chief priests. But now in chapter 25, who is it that were actually planning the ambush? It's not the mob. It's the Jewish priests. How sad that, that such were the schemes which the Jewish leaders sought to employ against Paul. Their agenda was not to give Paul a fair trial. Actually, their agenda was not even to give him another trial. Their agenda was simply to kill him, even, even before reaching Jerusalem. Their deceptiveness is also seen in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Luke tells us that the charges the Jewish priests brought against Paul in Caesarea were many and serious. But there's something else Luke tells us about these serious and many charges. They couldn't prove them. They were false charges. They were, they were false testimonies so that the entire scheme against Paul was based on fabricated reasons, on lies and deception. Luke wants us to know these details. I wonder why. He wants us to show how low these leaders had to reach and how deceptive they had become in fighting against Paul. They had accused Paul, and this is irony, friends. They had accused Paul of breaking the law. Right? Remember? This is what they accused Paul of, of breaking the law. Yet they themselves were breaking the law. God's law in their plans to eliminate Paul. Two of the Ten Commandments, if you remember, two of the Ten Commandments say, you shall not murder and you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Yet they did both. They brought false charges against Paul and they planned to have him murdered even without a trial. I wonder what was going on in the minds of these people as they plotted these deceptive plans. And, and friends, can I see, say, and re- say this, the obvious? These were the chief priests. How could they break God's law in order to convict someone else to be as a, as a lawbreaker? What was going on in their minds? What were they thinking? Did they think that the end justifies a means? That as long as the end was justified, the means to get there 
was, were justified as well? Did their own commitment to Judaism blind them from actually following God's law? How easy it is, friends, how easy it is for people to become so attached to human traditions and to their own plans that for the sake of protecting such plans, people become blinded and willing to act against God's Word. How easy it is for, for people to, who think they're fighting for the truth to succumb to deceptive ways. And how ironic that they're willing to use deception in order to fight for the truth in their eyes. How amazing. How ironic. Friends, even Christians can fall in the trap of um, using manipulation and deception in the service of fighting for the truth. If you've been in churches long enough and you've seen some bad experiences of church gatherings, you've seen how members oftentimes use deception and manipulation to act against other brothers. And they do it in the name of truth, in standing for the truth. How amazing that the human heart is so deceptive and so corrupt that, that we all can fall to such mechanisms. And here we see that the chief priests have acted in this way. A contrast to this, remember what Paul wrote in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul said at that time in, in 2 Corinthians, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Well, friends, what can we learn from, from this story and from these details that, that Luke gives us? Let's be sure that as we seek to promote God's truth, we don't fall in the trap of using disgraceful or underway, underhanded or manipulated or somehow deceptive ways. Let us be a community that refuses to practice deception in all our interactions, especially as we seek to be the community that upholds the truth. Against this deceptive opposition, Paul in good conscience was able to respond in verse 9. Look at verse 9, how Paul says, how he responds to Festus and to those who were trying him and charging him. Paul says in verse 9, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. It's amazing. Paul, even though he was accused falsely, he was able to say that he lived a life of above reproach in regards to the temple, in regards to the law, in regards to Caesar. Most likely these three aspects were the things that the Jewish leaders were pressing against him. We don't know the details now, but most likely these were things that came out. So Paul says, I have, I have lived in such a way that I have caused no offense in any of these three areas. Paul lived a life of being above reproach. Yet at this point, Festus shows signs of, of wavering in his initial plans. In the beginning, in, in verse 3 and 4, we see a, a governor who who opposes their, the, the, the request to, to give them a favor and seems, no, you guys come to Jerusalem. He seems to be holding on tightly and well to what he's supposed to do and not give in to the favors of the Jews. But in verse 9, verse 9, Festus 
wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? The idea of granting favors appears uh, in this section quite, quite a few times. It showed up in chapter 24, verse 27, where Felix, we were told, Felix left Paul in prison. Why? Because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. Then in verse 2 of chapter 25, of chapter 25 uh, we see that the Jews ask the new governor for a favor. At that time, he doesn't give in. But in verse 9, we see Festus uh, toying with the idea of giving the Jews a favor and granting them the favor. But in verse 11, Paul replies to Festus and says that since there's nothing in their charges or nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And the word translated, give me up, is an interesting word here in the original language. It's also the, the word that really means or can be translated as giving freely as a favor. So it's not just about giving me up as in, in the sense of, of uh, causing someone to, 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 as a spy or, or to pass on as, as someone, you know, in a forceful way. It's really, the word here is give freely as a favor. And Paul says, no, you can't just give me up as a favor. You can't just treat me like I'm a favor. And, and this is where we see in, this, in, this, in these details a sense that actually in the eyes of these people, between Festus and the Jews, the life of Paul is just an object of favors. How can someone's life be a matter of, of merely exchanging favors? You, you see how, how fragile Paul's life appears at this moment? Even though imprisoned, guarded by Roman soldiers, he, he reaches a low point of realizing, I'm at the mercy of these people. I have become an object of, of their exchange of favors. How pitiful, how sad, how helpless. And yet, this is exactly what happens to God's apostle. At this time, Paul realizes that even Festus may fall prey to deceptive plans of the Jews, to their schemes, to their influence. Even Paul, even, even Festus might fall to, the, to their manipulative schemes and be persuaded to, Paul, to hand Paul in the hands of the Jews as an act of favor. So Paul appeals to Caesar. Now, only Roman citizens had the right to request to be judged by the emperor. Friends, it's amazing that and sad that Paul has to appeal to Caesar to bring about more justice and more dignity to his life than the spiritual leaders of Israel were able to bring him. It's amazing that, that they were able to, that the spiritual leaders of Israel were able to influence the Roman governor in this way that Paul's life becomes so fragile in their hands. But in the midst of all deceptive plans, in the midst of, of this kind of sober, frightening, discouraging picture, in the midst of all that, a door opens. What the Lord revealed to Paul about the necessity to testify in Rome now truly becomes an open door as Paul requests to be judged by Caesar. Friends, if we looked only at Paul's circumstances up to this point, if we looked only at his enemies, if we looked at their accusations, if we looked at how fragile 
Paul's life is at this moment, we might be overcome with discouragement, disappointment, fear, and wonder if God has hidden his face. What happened to the promise two years ago? When we see so much pressure against Paul, yet in the midst of the reign of deception, in the midst of the reign of compromise and injustice, God is still present to work out his plans. Friends, this is a gracious providence of God. It's not explicitly stated in this passage, but it's operative behind the scenes. He is still at work, even in the dark situations, even in times of pressure, even in moments of fear, he's still there to accomplish his plans. The rest of chapter 25 shows us how God was working providentially to arrange for Paul to give one final defense speech and one final presentation of, his, of the message of the gospel to the highest intelligentsia of Caesarea. This time in it's, uh, it's, this time, it's a very, very festive setting to an audience that could be described as the cream of the crop of Caesarea. So second point that I'd like to, to, to show to you from this passage is God's providence in unexpected opportunities. God's providence in unexpected opportunities. Once Festus agreed to send Paul to Caesar, he finds himself in another dilemma. He doesn't know what to do with and what to, how to write the official charge against Paul since Paul will be sent to Caesar as a prisoner. Look at verse 27. His, his, his dilemma is stated very clearly. He says, It seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now, the problem is here, there were charges against Paul. The Jews made their charges very clear. Right? The problem was, none of those charges were true. <laughs> so, as a Roman governor, if none of the charges were true, his job should have been to free Paul. But he didn't. Because God, Festus wanted to play the political game. Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor. So when, when that happened, Paul had appealed to Caesar. So Festus finds himself in this dilemma. What is the official charge I should bring against him? Because the ones I heard I know are not true, and yet I have not freed him up. The rest of this chapter gives us a picture of the Roman impressions of Paul's case. Luke wants the readers of Acts to know and understand that the Roman officials found nothing wrong, worthy of death in Paul. So Festus asks King Agrippa for advice on how to write the charge against Paul. Now, some helpful background about Agrippa. We may not know much about him if, if we just read through this chapter and not know a little bit about the history behind this king. Uh, king Agrippa was a Jewish king, actually. He was a Jewish nobility. He grew up in Rome. He was raised there. He was from the Herodian line. As a matter of fact, he was the last king in the line of Herod. His great-grandfather was King Herod the Great. The, the, his father was King Herod Agrippa of chapter 12 of Acts, who was anti the church in Jerusalem. Now, this King Herod Agrippa II uh, grew up, because he grew up in Rome and 
It was known among the Roman politicians. He was actually given authority by the emperor Claudius to watch over the Jerusalem temple. As a matter of fact, King Agrippa had the authority to appoint the high priest over the, church, over the Jerusalem temple, and he had the authority to watch the temple treasury. That's why when King Agrippa comes to greet Festus at Caesarea and wish him well uh, upon the new governorship, Festus finds an opportune time to, to get this king engaged in this case because King Agrippa was familiar with the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem. He was familiar somewhat with the Jewish ways of life, even though he grew up in Rome. He was familiar more than Festus with the situation of, of the Jews, so that Festus recruits King Agrippa. From verse 14 to 21, we hear the story of Paul from the mouth of Festus, and this is precious. We hear Paul's case not from the accusations of the Jews, but from a Roman governor. Now, of course, as, as Festus describes his case, or the case of Paul, and, uh, and all the pressure against Paul, Festus brings this report in a way that really is self-serving. We see that in the, in the way Paul, uh, Festus tells Agrippa that when uh, the Jewish leaders pressed him to bring Paul to Jerusalem, he, uh, he upheld the Roman law and said that according to the law, Roman law, nobody can be judged without a trial. And that was true. But here, Festus is, is telling Agrippa how well he has managed to, to implement the Roman law in this case. What's interesting, when it comes to the trial in Jerusalem, Festus does not tell King Agrippa that he chose not to, or he toyed with giving the Jews a favor. He doesn't say that. He, he, nicely, he nicely covers for, 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 the, for the problems in order to present himself well, in order that his report would be self-serving. But it's interesting, in the midst of, of this self-serving report, it's interesting how Festus describes the main difference between Paul and the Jews. Look at verse 19. The main difference between Paul and Jews, as best as Festus was able to understand it, is that rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, and about, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Yes, Festus understood correctly that at the heart of the conflict between Jews and Paul, or the Jewish authorities and Paul, was the issue of what to do with Jesus. Now, for Festus, this was just a certain Jesus. He heard about his death, and he heard about Paul's claim that Jesus was alive. Now, Festus had a correct understanding about Jesus, but an incomplete understanding. What Festus knew about Jesus was true but deeply in, incomplete in order to understand truly the message of Jesus or the message of the gospel. Festus did not know or did not pick out or did not say that Jesus was the Son of God. It's a rather important claim, truth about who Jesus was, that he was just, not just a man, but the Son of God. He just as did not say why he died. He just died. He didn't say why he died. Jesus didn't know that Jesus died for the sins of God's people, for the sins of, of, the, of the people that, that God's people might be brought to Him and, and called to Him and, and, be, and have their sins forgiven and washed away. 
Festus didn't know that, didn't pick on that. Festus didn't know why Jesus resurrected. He didn't know why, why, why the meaning of, of Jesus' resurrection was. So from his answers, Festus wasn't even convinced of these facts. He simply reported what Paul proclaimed. Friends, how many people today, how many people today have such a superficial knowledge about Christianity? They might know only superficially what Christianity claims. They might know some facts, which might be true, but deeply incomplete. They may not understand why those, those facts are important. Why does it matter that Jesus died? Why does it matter that he was raised? People don't understand the meaning of, of the gospel of Christ and, and, and God's plan of, of salvation and how God provided a means and a rescue plan for people to be saved if only they would trust in Christ and return from their sins, return to Jesus. Festus had an initial understanding and, it, and an, an outsider description of the Christian claim, but his understanding was vastly incomplete. Paul's defense speech before Agrippa, as we will see next week in chapter 26, will explain truly why is it and what, what is the significance of the Christian message and why is Paul in chain and willing to be in chain for the Christian message. But friends, for us today, I want us to make sure we understand that the message about the death and resurrection of Jesus is deeply significant. Significant because of, because of the following truths that the gospel makes known to each and every one of us. And if if this morning anyone here does not understand the gospel, and, and looking around as most of us, knowing most of us, I think most of us do, but I want to make sure you understand that the gospel which Paul proclaimed, the message about Jesus, his death and resurrection, is a message about the God who created us, the one who owns all things because he created us. And he's holy and perfect in all his attributes. He cannot stand imperfection. And yet we, those whom he created, rebelled against him, rebelled against his word. And because of that rebellion and because of his holiness, God actually had to bring judgment upon us. And his judgment was manifested in the fact that he separated Adam and Eve from the garden. And that separation was not just a physical separation, it was a spiritual separation which triggered death, spiritual death immediately and eventually physical death. But God in his love did not want his creation to stand separate forever. God in His love provided a way of rescue. And that rescue was through His Son, Jesus, who died on the cross, taking upon Himself the punishment of our sins, the punishment that our sins deserved. He died for those sins. Three days later, He was resurrected to prove that indeed He is the Son of God. He was able to, to manifest and to provide a salvation and a rescue plan. And then He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He'll come again to judge the quick and the dead. But this gospel message calls people to respond. It's not a good news unless people respond through repentance and faith. And once people respond with repentance and faith, God grants us a new life. God grants us a new spirit, a new birth. We become adopted children of God. This is, a, this is the true message of the gospel. Festus didn't understand all of that. He didn't understand the meaning and the significance of Jesus' death. He just called Jesus a certain Jesus who died and Paul claimed to be alive. Friends, Luke tells us in verse 23 that on the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. 
Amazing. How did this happen? How did it happen that from, a, from a, an apostle who was barely able to, to escape the deception of the Jews, barely able to escape the, the status of being an object of favors between the Jews and the Romans, he's now in front of an audience. And look at the audience. Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, that means all the major generals in the area, and the prominent men of the city. One of the commentators describes this event as a judicial hearing that has been turned into a royal entertainment and theater. It's not just a king, but the military officials and the leading people of Caesarea. Friends, the, d- the details describing who this audience is are important. Luke wants to show us that both Jewish and Gentiles, Gentile people, men of influence, are summoned to hear the gospel. The Jewish king and Gentile leaders all are summoned to hear the gospel. Now, I have a question for you. Who summoned them? Who brought them there? Was it Paul? Not really. Was it the church of Caesarea? Was it their outreach program? They wish they could have done that and pulled that off. Who was it? Humanly speaking, it was Festus. Festus recruited King Agrippa. King Agrippa said, I want to hear this man. And when King Agrippa decided to go, the word got out. And the, the military tribunes come. The, the leading men of, the, of Caesarea start gathering. They come. And by the way, this happened overnight. Because it says, on the next day. All this happened overnight. How did this setting come about? Paul couldn't organize it. The church in Caesarea couldn't organize it. You know who organized it? God's providence. God's providence. It's amazing how God providentially orchestrated that the Jewish king of Judea would create an opportunity to hear plainly Paul's message. Because Festus had such a, such a small, such a, such a minutia, such a summary of that message that it was actually distorted. It was not complete. God used Festus and King Agrippa's curiosity to come and hear Paul's message, to hear more detail Why is Paul in bondage? We should not be surprised, friends, that God would work this way. Remember remember how God revealed, what God revealed to Ananias in Acts 9? God said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings. God said he would do this. God said this this was his plan for Paul. God had planned and now an opportunity and Paul would bring his name, his name, the name of Christ, before the Gentiles and before the kings, even in Caesarea. Oh, friends, while we are called to use every means to spread the gospel, we must realize that God is providentially able and working to open doors for the gospel, doors which we could never open on our own. That's why we must pray and depend on the Lord for all our efforts and for all the efforts of the gospel to be spread. Even when things seem to go against us, even when we feel limited, even when we feel that we are unable to do it, 
we appeal to a gracious God who is able to work to open doors for the gospel to be spoken. That's why God's providence is gracious. I love how Paul encouraged the believers in Colossae. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The importance of prayer. And then Paul says, and at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may, be, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Even in prison, Paul is asking the church, even while he's bound, he's asking the church to pray that God may open a door for the gospel so he can speak it, even though he can't because he's in prison. That's what we see here in Acts 25. Luke gives us all these details in, in slow motion to tell us here's, here's how you get from a, God, from a guy whose life is so fragile to, a, to have an opportunity to speak to the highest people in the city of Caesarea. Who can pull that off? God can. God can. Therefore, pray. Be in prayer, in steadfastest prayer. And continue to pray for gospel opportunities even when we feel like we're not able to. Pray for that neighbor that you feel like the door, the door is closed. Pray for that classmate or that colleague in college. Pray for that co-worker that you feel like, I've exhausted every means. You know, I'm done. I don't know what else I can do. Keep praying. God can open doors, at least for the gospel to be spoken clearly. They may or may not respond, but at least pray that God would open doors where you can speak the gospel clearly and openly. Friends, the gospel of Christ can advance even when we feel like we are at the mercy of circumstances or at the mercy of other people. The reason why it can advance is because of the gracious providence of God. God's providence worked in both scenarios. Now, we see God's providence in the unexpected opportunities, right? We get that. It, it really encourages our hearts, doesn't it? Oh, who could pull this off? Only God could have. But friends, God's providence was just as much at work in the first half of the chapter as it was in the second. And we must realize that both of these extremes are under God's full control. It's so easy to see God's providence in the unexpected opportunities, great opportunities. But this chapter reminds us that God's gracious providence works even when opposition increases, works even when our lives seem to be at the mercy of others. God's providence works even when we are in circumstances over which we have no control. Friends, God's providence might have different timing than our timing. Remember, Two years had to pass. God's providence might have different details than our preferences. Paul may have preferred to go to Rome free, and yet he ends up going as a, in chains. So the, the details might be different, but nonetheless, we can trust in God's gracious providence. Even when we don't understand it, we can rest assured that, God's, that God accomplishes all His purposes for us and with us. That's God's gracious providence. Would you pray with me? Oh, great God, you truly 
are great. Your wisdom, your power, your knowledge, your control, your sovereign will is able to overcome all circumstances, even those we don't like or we don't understand. Father, thank you that your providence is at work. Father, help us, your people, to understand, even from this chapter, even from this, this episode in the book of Acts, that no matter what happens around us, oh Lord, your gracious hand is in control. Father, help us to realize and trust in your providential hand, providential care. Help us to trust in you, even when things don't go the way we want to, even when we still have to wait and wait and wait and not know what will happen, even when things seem to go worse than better. Oh, Lord, help us to trust in your providential care.